Hello and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive youth athletes, survivors of abuse, and their families who are dealing with abusive authority figures. This podcast is for anyone who is fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. I really hope that you enjoy the contents of each episode, but remember, it is never a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who knows and understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes, head on over to my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. And one more thing, don't forget to rate and review the show and leave a comment. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get into the show. Were any of you befuddled, discouraged, or felt gut-punched when they found out that Bill Cosby's conviction for sexual assault was overturned by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? And by you, I mean sexual abuse survivors, advocates, or anyone that cares about or has an interest in justice. Well, I did. I did feel gut-punched on the morning that I woke up in June to find out that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had overturned Bill Cosby's conviction for the sexual assault of Andrea Constand that had occurred in the early or in, in 2002 was the time of the sexual assault. And like I do with most things that I really care about, and if there's some type of best source or document that I can go to, I pulled up the Supreme Court decision. This is Pennsylvania Supreme Court, because I had to understand how was it that something that seems so clear, an individual, Bill Cosby, who had used his position, his power as an authority figure to harm and assault women, how it was that he was able to have a conviction overturned. Here's a little bit of background. The survivor in this case, Andrea Constan, she was a basketball player. She's born in Toronto and she played high school. She had what appears to be a rather successful career. She played college basketball at the University of Arizona. And after that, she then went on at some point to become a member of the basketball coaching staff at Temple University. She worked under Olympic gold medalist Don Staley, who worked also at Temple. She was going to be kind of a coaching assistant at that time. Bill Cosby, who was very well known and associated with Temple University, it was during that time that Andrea came on to the coaching staff that they then started to develop a type of mentor-mentee relationship. They would interact in social settings and Andrea would seek out his advice about career, and just really develop what she thought to be an older, you know, getting information, getting advice from an older figure. She was born in 1973. Bill Cosby was much older than her at the time. So as this relationship developed in January of 2004, Miss Constan went to Mr. Cosby's home he lives in Pennsylvania, in a suburb, a wealthy suburb of Pennsylvania. And as the reports go, she was talking about some of the stresses, some of the anxiety, some of her fears that were professional career related. And she was offered by Mr. Cosby three blue pills to help her relax, take the edge off. 
Mr. Cosby claimed that those pills were over-counter drug Benadryl, which we all know can make individuals sleepy. They're usually given, they're an antihistamine if you have some type of allergic reaction to something. Ms. Constance said that the pills made her semi-unconscious and she wasn't able to move. She was then able to observe that Mr. Cosby began to fondle her breast, her crotch, her, her vagina, and he then used her hand to place it and manipulate his penis. She says that she woke up, her clothes were dishuffled. She then left the home, but continued to have some contact with him after that. And that contact included not only her, but also her mother had contact with Mr. Cosby. One of those contacts came after Andrea told her mother what had happened. And Mr. Cosby was recorded during one of those conversations with Andrea, you know, stating that yes, or confirming that he had given her pills, but those pills were Benadryl. You know, she was upset at the time, at the time of the recording. He had then offered, not only in speaking with Andrea, but also speaking with the mother to provide monetary, you know, it can be construed either way, monetary help, compensation to set up a trust for her. There was a criminal investigation that was started after Ms. Constant reported the assault to the police, to her local police in Canada. The Canadian police then reached out to police detectives in Pennsylvania near Mr. Cosby's home, which that county is Montgomery County. And then the investigation started. Now, in by way of background and to paint a picture for you, then came in the district attorney at that time. And it was a district attorney by the name of Bruce Castro. And in February of 2005, after the Canadian police, the local police where Andrea lived, after they contacted the PA, Montgomery County detectives and that district attorney, Bruce Castro found that at the conclusion of the investigation, that there was not sufficient evidence, credible evidence existed to criminally prosecute Mr. Cosby and that he would not be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The case was then dropped and the prosecutors in Pennsylvania decided not to proceed. Well, before we fast forward a little bit, DA Bruce Castor stated that what he then did was that he released a press announcement, a press release with the intent of showing and giving Ms. Constan some ability to get justice in the civil court. And the press release in substance stated that their office, the DA's office, would not go ahead with a criminal prosecution. There was insufficient evidence. It may be revisited at another time, but right now, this prosecution was not going to go forward. Around the time of issuing this press release, DA Castor spoke with Bill Cosby's attorneys And Mr. Castor asserts, and when I say asserts, he asserted it both, you know, during the time that this case was later prosecuted, because before we get to, I'll give you a little bit, there was a new prosecution of Mr. Cosby, and that's how he was convicted, the conviction that was later overturned. But Mr. Castor stated that he had conversations with Bill Cosby's civil and criminal attorneys and stated that because the DA's office would not be able to go forward with any type of prosecution, that Andrea would get some type of justice in civil court. And without the threat of a criminal prosecution, Bill Cosby would not be able to invoke his Fifth Amendment right. That is the right that we hold to not incriminate ourselves. 
So Mr. Cosby couldn't go into a civil setting, into a deposition in civil court and invoke that right saying, hey, I can't answer that question. I can't talk about that because I have the threat of criminal prosecution. What Mr. Castor believed and what he says that he was doing, I don't know what he believed, I should say. But what he says that he was doing is he, he was removing Mr. Cosby's ability to evoke that right, thereby laying the path open for Andrea's attorneys and Andrea to get some type of justice in civil court. Andrea did sue Mr. Cosby in civil court. There were a number of depositions. That's just questioning, formal questions that were done during a discovery phase to get deeper understanding of the case and the evidence that those depositions did take place. And as a result of that civil suit that was filed by Andrea Constant against Bill Cosby, she was able to later recover money, a monetary settlement and award. It was around $3.3 million or just about. So she did recover in civil court. Now, this agreement that Mr. Castor is saying, stating that was present between the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the district attorney's office, and Bill Cosby was done orally. It was not written. It wasn't memorialized. As attorneys, we know that agreements can be both oral and written. We also know that the most effective way to show or provide proof of an agreement is to have it boiled down and put into writing. It doesn't always happen, but those are some of the things that you know, you, you counsel someone, you think about first, let's put this in writing. This agreement was not in writing. And it was the fact that this agreement was not in writing is part of what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court looked at and discussed and talked about when they, in their opinion, that ultimately overturned Bill Cosby's conviction. Uh, another issue that was looked at in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's opinion that overturned the conviction was whether D.A. Castor, his decision to not prosecute, his decision when he states that he entered into an agreement with Bill Cosby and his attorneys. The other issue was that he believed, D.A. Castor, he believed that he was binding future district attorneys from ever criminally prosecuting Bill Cosby. And that can be debated whether it was forever, but for purposes of this discussion, we'll just say he believed that he was binding or other future district attorneys could not prosecute Bill Cosby based on the evidence that was present at the time. So with that, we get to the Pennsylvania, that's a little bit of background, and we get to how it was that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, no, the decision, the trial, the evidence, the what was done in the trial court, what was done later, motions that were filed, later appeals that were filed, that was wrong. And Bill Cosby's conviction has to be overturned. Let me read now to you specifically what the court, what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, they said, we hold that when a prosecutor, and in this case, it was prosecutor, it was Mr. Castor, when a prosecutor makes an unconditional promise of non-prosecution, and when the defendant, and in this case, Mr. Cosby, relies upon the guarantee to the detriment of his constitutional right not to testify, the principle of fundamental fairness that undergirds due process of law in our criminal justice system demands that the promise be enforced. What are they saying? They're basically saying that D.A. Castor, 
It's their finding that D.A. Castor made an unconditional promise to Bill Cosby and said, hey, look, we're not going to prosecute you. You don't have that threat of prosecution. You could speak freely in the civil case. You don't have the right to invoke your right against self-incrimination when you're questioned in your civil depositions by Andrea Castor's attorneys. You don't have that right. And Bill Cosby relied on that right. And now our justice system, we have this due process. We have fairness. And because of that, because of that reliance, we have to enforce it. We have to enforce the agreement, this oral agreement that we are taking at face value that Mr. Castor made with Bill Cosby's attorneys. And that agreement demands that the conviction be overturned. What did the court use to rely on this decision? Well, I read the opinion and I think I had mentioned before that as a law student, I would often go back and forth reading these opinions. You're reading them and you you get on a roll. Some of the, you know, as a new student, newly thinking and methods of, you know, how opinions are written and you get on a roll and you're thinking, oh my God, I know exactly where this is going. And say you even have picked a side and you're cheering for this person and you're like, oh, this is right. And then it's it's as if you sometimes run into a wall and you're like, what? Wait a minute. Where did that come from? Because the court just takes a left turn or a right turn and you didn't expect it, you didn't see it coming, or the court is going about its analysis and they're restating laws and precedent and history and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And then they, you know, invoke some some type of word or concept. For example, courts love, attorneys love the totality of the circumstances or phrases such as light most favorable or uh, even this one, detrimental reliance. Those are phrases. Those are phrases that, or here's another one, reasonable person. Those phrases are very often what I see to be just disguises for ways to turn a corner, change an opinion, lead you almost to um, a different outcome that you thought the court was going to come to. But looking back at some of the reasoning, as I was saying before, and what the court found, what was really important to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court were the press releases that were put out by D.A. Castor at the time. So back in 2005, when the decision was made by the district attorney to not file the charges, there were two press releases. I believe it was two, two press releases that were put out. And in the court's opinion, they had found that D.A. Castor was using the press releases in kind of a, a way to communicate to the press, to attorneys, and to the general public different messages. And these messages could be relied upon by Bill Cosby. In a way, this was one of the means that D.A. Castor was using to place this oral agreement in some type of written form. So they looked at these press releases. The other thing that the court found was the new, the district attorney that went forward with the later prosecution against Mr. Cosby in 2015, that she was bound by the earlier promise of D.A. Castor, even though there was evidence that the later district attorney didn't believe she was bound by this oral promise or some type of whatever was conveyed to the attorneys, the court found that she was. There was a part of the opinions transcript that it was shown during Mr. Cosby's civil deposition that there were several times that he didn't answer questions, 
that the attorneys sought to have question and answers from the police investigation entered into evidence so that Mr. Cosby would have to avoid answering the questions. And I'm saying this to show that there were definitely, in my opinion, points in the deposition where the attorneys felt, and Mr. Cosby may have felt, that if he answered, if he was as forthcoming in the civil depositions, that he may expose himself to some type of criminal prosecution. And that goes, that speaks directly to the fact that there may not have been some clear promise to Mr. Cosby that he wouldn't be later prosecuted. There were a number of other instances that really brought into question for for me whether we could really rely on this clean-cut rationale and analysis. The court found that there was a promise by law enforcement, by the prosecutor, by the chief you know, law enforcement officer, Mr. Castro at the time, there was a definitive promise that existed. And that promise was did not only mean that he wouldn't be prosecuted, it also meant that he could, Mr. Cosby would have to testify freely in the civil case. And that thirdly, all subsequent, all later district attorneys could not prosecute Mr. Cosby. There were real questions in the opinion. But as I was saying before, as a law student, when you're reading these and you're thinking the court is going to come to one final decision, when you read these, you actually sometimes think that it's so clear at the trial court level, at the when the case was motioned and appealed, and then at the Supreme Court level, you really think that they're going to come to that conclusion. There was actually a dissenting opinion. And the dissent actually, and dissent means that part of the court did not, or members of the court did not agree with the majority's opinion. And when you look at it, you almost, as if you're following a trail, you're following a path, but then similar to being a lawsuit as now you're reading this, I'm reading this opinion and you're like, how did this happen? How did they come to this decision? I noticed in the days after the conviction was overturned that several commentators, legal attorneys and media commentators, you know, cheered the decision. They may not necessarily have cheered, you know, Mr. Cosby being released or had an opinion, you know, either way about whether he was a sexual perpetrator, but they said that the court had come to the right, the correct analysis. And they sounded so definitive in their reasoning that it was a violation of due process. But when you look at it, when you look at what they're talking about, we're talking about a district attorney who may or may have not We don't know what in particular was conveyed. We don't know the exact wording, language, provisions were conveyed to Mr. Cosby's attorney. But to take that oral statement and then to say that that oral statement serves as the foundation to bar all further prosecution and also to say that in the court's holding and their finding that unequivocally Bill Cosby relied on this to his detriment. And, you know, that's a breach in our fairness and our due process lies. I don't see it. I don't see it in this court opinion. I don't see it in the the evidence that was before the court. The trial court didn't did not find that Mr. Cosby had could rely on that, that it was a promise. The trial court didn't see it. The superior court above the trial court, they also did not see that. It was only when we get to this Pennsylvania Supreme Court that they found that the subsequent prosecutor could not open the case 
could not prosecute Mr. Cosby and that Mr. Cosby had relied on a promise by Mr. Castor. In fact, it was noted in the court's opinion that the trial court, which would have been the original court, the lower court, they concluded that Mr. Castor, the former DA's promise, did not constitute a binding enforceable agreement. The court further stated in their opinion that the trial court concluded that Mr. Cosby and DA Castor did not enter into a formal immunity agreement. And immunity in means in this instance, immunity meaning that Bill Cosby would not be under the threat of prosecution. The Supreme Court went on to say, before the trial court, the Superior Court, and now this court, meaning the, the PA Supreme Court, the parties have vigorously disputed whether D.A. Castor and Mr. Cosby reached a binding agreement, whether D.A. Castor extended an enforceable promise, or whether any act of legal significance occurred at all. There's testimony in the record that could support any of these conclusions goes on to say the trial court, the entity charged with sorting through these facts, found that D.A. Castor made no agreement or overt promise. So this is, that was a very compelling statement found. But remember, the Supreme Court goes on to find, using a combination of its interpretation of the law, D.A. Castor's press releases, and an analysis that it used as far as plea agreements that have been construed and interpreted in the law. Plea agreements are those agreements that prosecutors will enter into with defendants and their attorneys. So by using an analysis of those items and those issues, the Supreme Court found that Bill Cosby, as I said before, had relied on, and they found a promise They relied on it, that he relied on it to his detriment, and that due process in our criminal justice system requires that Bill Cosby's conviction be overturned. There was another issue that was before the court, but as is common, if a court comes to a conclusion or comes to a definitive holding finding, they many times, they will not go on to discuss or decide another issue in a case. And that was the case before this court. Not only was the court asked to decide the issue of whether there was a binding agreement and whether Bill Cosby had relied upon this agreement, whether there was a violation of his due process rights, there was also before the court the issue as to whether evidence had been entered by other women that dealt with their alleged sexual interactions, whether Bill Cosby had committed sexual offenses against another of other women. And as a general rule, evidence of similar crimes can be barred or not allowed in to a prosecution because it would be considered too prejudicial, that it would be confuse the issue and a jury, the whomever, a judge or jury, whomever is considering the case would find that too prejudicial. And then they would just convict based on similar past offenses instead of on what was before the court or the current charges. So there was actually evidence that was admitted at the trial court that dealt with prior offenses. The court mentioned it. They talked about, for example, offenses 
that were allegedly committed by Bill Cosby starting several, several years prior to Andrea Constance. For example, the trial of Bill Cosby, it included testimony from Janice Baker Kenny, who stated that in summary in 1982, worked at a casino in Nevada, and she was invited to a party. When she arrived at the location, it wasn't really a party. It was a residence that Mr. Cosby was staying in. She was 24 years old at the time. Mr. Cosby was 45. And when she got there, there was just, I think, a total of three people there. She was given a pill, took the pill. She was given a pill by, I think it was two pills by Mr. Cosby. She became dizzy and passed out. When she woke up, she was unclothed. Her pants were unbuttoned. He leaned over. Mr. Cosby, it's alleged, fondled her breast, her vagina. She felt intoxicated. She had really no memory. I think they went upstairs to a bedroom. When she woke up the next morning, she was naked. And Mr. Cosby was also naked, it was alleged. She couldn't remember what had happened, but believed she had sex, says that she left. Also, there was testimony that in 1982, Janice Dickerson, who, if I recall, she is a is a very well-known model. I think she actually, not too long ago, there was a show about her or reality, or I think she was one of these celebrity judges on one of these shows. But Janice Dickerson had met Cosby back in 1982. At that time, she was, okay, yes, she was an, an aspiring model. Mr. Cosby had reached out to her through a modeling agency and had offered to work as her mentor. And these are some of the allegations that Dickerson, Janice Dickerson met Cosby. At some point, they had gone to a location in Lake Tahoe. She was working with Cosby's musical director, practicing her vocals. And there was a dinner one night. Mr. Cosby was there. There was drinking involved. Something to the fact that Janice Dickerson was feeling the pain of menstrual cramps. Mr. Cosby offered her a pill, gave her a pill to relieve the, the menstrual cramps. The musical director left. Mr. Cosby then started to talk about her career and if she wanted to come to his hotel room. She agreed. She went to the hotel room. It's reported and alleged that Miss Dickerson felt lightheaded. She had trouble speaking. She then recalled allegedly that he climbed on top of her, had sex with her. She was unable to move. She passed out. And when she awoke, she didn't recall how she had arrived at the room. She was naked from the waist down. She had semen on her legs and felt pain in her anus. Testimony was also entered from a woman by the name of Heidi Thomas, who in 1984, when she was 27 and Mr. Cosby was 64, it was alleged that as an actress and a model, she was contacted, ended up being invited by Cosby to Reno for personal acting lessons. Um, there was an arrangement made. She ended up at a home. I don't know a home that he owned it or a home that Mr. Cosby was at at the time. Everyone had left. They were the only two people there. Mr. Cosby had said, okay, let's practice, you know, your acting skills, pretend to be an intoxicated person. Miss Thomas said, well, that was going to be hard because she had never been intoxicated. And Mr. Cosby said, well, you're going to need to, how are you going to play a role if you don't have experience? So it's alleged that Mr. Cosby gave her wine. She drank some of it. She became extremely intoxicated. She faded in and out of consciousness. And then at that point, it's alleged that 
when she awoken, she was on a bed and she found Mr. Cosby on top of her, forcing his penis into her mouth. She passed out and woke up later feeling sick. There was also evidence of another woman by the name of, and I hope I'm saying this right, Shalane Laska. And in 1986, when she was 16 years old and Mr. Cosby was 48, it's alleged that he called her to a home. She visited there and she was an expiring model. He invited her to meet him in Las Vegas saying that he would get someone to take better pictures from her, implying it's alleged that he can get her a role on The Cosby Show. She was enticed by this prospect. She went to Las Vegas. As promised, there were some pictures taken. Eventually, she was alone with Mr. Cosby. He gave her blue pills, which he said was antihistamine, that would help her with a cold which she was suffering. He also provided her with a shot of liquor. She took both the alcohol and the pills, and she felt intoxicated, unable to move. Mr. Cosby helped her to a bed. She laid down. He then began to fondle, pinch her breast, and rub his genitalia against her legs until she felt something warm on her legs. She woke up the next day wearing only a robe. There was also testimony entered by another woman, a woman by the name of Mr. Miss Lubin, similar type of allegations of unconsexual sexual relationships. This evidence of these other women were entered, the court didn't get to a decision as to whether this evidence should or should not have been entered, whether it was prejudicial, whether the court, the jury should not have considered it. Because again, they found that the conviction was illegitimate and should be overturned because going back to Mr. Castor's promise that Bill Cosby relied on and that the later prosecutor was bound by. When I was reading this and I asked you at the beginning of this episode, did anyone else feel befuddled? Did they feel gut punched by this? After going through and reading the opinion, thinking about it, my kind of what happened here, how could this have gone on? It really settled in a place more so of despair. And I hate to say that, but if I'm being honest with you, that's really where it lands. I always want to be hopeful. I do think that things are changing. There have been great strides that have made in the law. Their authority figures are being held accountable. Statute of limitations for sex abuse survivors are being extended, which allows for survivors to bring lawsuits, both criminal and civil, against perpetrators well into their 50s, well into their midlife, because there's a recognition that survivors and victims don't disclose, they don't tell about what the abuse has happened to them for several reasons. So there is good news on this front. Look at all of the good things that have come about because of the Me Too movement. You know, And when I say good things, I don't only mean legally good things that the law is holding individuals accountable. It's also the liberation that survivors feel when they can talk about it, when they don't have to feel that heavy, heavy burden of shame that they've done something wrong. And also the isolation of feeling that they're the only ones. The Me Too movement has shown men, women, and children that you are not the only one that this has happened to, that you don't have to suffer in silence. So that in and of itself, that's a great thing. But I wouldn't be honest with you, my listener, if I didn't say that this opinion did give me some despair. Because although 
there was not a definitive finding that there was this written agreement out there. The parties, Bill Cosby's attorney and Mr. Castor, the DA, went back and forth negotiating and coming to terms and then putting into a written agreement because the record is void that during the civil depositions, the Bill Cosby just, you know, answered every question willingly and just was like a spring of, you know, spouting forth everything that he had done. Instead, he was cautious. It appears that he was cautious doing his depositions. And usually you're cautious because you don't know what could happen. We don't have some of those things that would make me think that this opinion stands on just very clear evidence that this conviction should have been overturned. There's not clarity as to whether the later prosecutor was bound by whatever D.A. Castor had said in 2005. And that clarity, that, excuse me, that lack of clarity makes you wonder what else could happen. What other precedent, what other, you know, interpretations can be given to set survivors back in the court system? So I'm just being honest and saying that I had hoped that when I read the opinion, there would be a kind of, you know, okay, I get it. I get it. We we have to acknowledge, you know, look, the law, we have to have a respect for the law. The laws bind us. They do good in society. They let you know who stands where and what you can and cannot do. I was fully prepared to concede and say, look, okay, survivors, I'm reporting to you about the Bill Cosby case. It was overturned. It was overturned for these clear reasons. Don't worry about it. That doesn't set us back. That doesn't set back, you know, the fight to hold powerful, wealthy icons and authority figures accountable. I can't say that here. I can still say that it just, it leaves me feeling with, oh boy, that wasn't good. But like I said, we are not hopeless. This is one one opinion by one court in Pennsylvania. I won't go into the background behind some of the players and Mr. Castor. There's been speculation in the press. He also is the attorney or advisor to Donald Trump. The connection to or speculation about, you know, how that could lend to his rationale and why things were done the way they were done. Miss Constant never receiving word or an understanding that the case would not be prosecuted. I think she found out in the press initially. So these little pieces that are out there that you can weave together and kind of come up with your own, you know, story of how things happen and why things happen. I'm not going to go into that into detail. You can read that, you know, in the Times or in the Post, what have you. But I think the important takeaway here is that, yes, there is going to be steps that are taken backwards, but that doesn't mean that a movement, that what's been done, the good gains that we've seen in the law, that should be forgotten or that we should stop doing that. That's the biggest takeaway. That yes, I still feel some befuddlement, some lack of clarity around this decision, but that doesn't mean that we stop what we're doing as advocates That does not mean by any means, and this is the most important thing, and I should have said this at the top of the episode, that doesn't mean that survivors should not speak out. If you are a survivor sitting there quietly, not peacefully, but quietly holding in your story about abuse, wondering if you should go to law enforcement, wondering if you should seek out the counsel of an attorney because you've seen this case and you've seen 
Bill Cosby standing in pictures, holding up the victory sign with his hand, feeling vindicated. And you say, look, there is no way I'm going to speak out now. That's not what this case means. And that's not what the pictures of Bill Cosby mean, watching him being released from prison. You're still with the support and help. You're still going to speak out. And we're going to keep this going. It has been and it is always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening. Share this episode with a survivor that may be discouraged in light of this decision, telling them that we're not giving up hope, that when you really look behind the reasoning, I see why this opinion turned out the way it did. But this is not the end of the story. And there's so many people out there that support you. So I want you to keep talking. The movement is going to keep going and take care of yourself. Be well. Talk to you soon. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship this information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances you should review your particular circumstances with an attorney all liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed